In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day. We ask for your blessing and your guidance in everything. And we ask you that you bless, O Lord, these coming days of the great fast. Grant us your peace in all things and guide us to your heavenly kingdom. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray. Thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil one. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Uh, good evening, everybody. Um, God willing, tonight we're going to have another Q&A session um, based on the questions that have been submitted. If you would like to submit any questions for any future sessions, you can do so um, at the link on your screen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. So we have the first question um, for today is, can women wear lipstick when going to have communion? Um, so the, the, the lipstick itself, there's, there's no problem with having lipstick. The problem is, is that when, um, when you take of the blood, um, the, you know, when you, you put your mouth on the blood, uh, the spoon, sorry, um, the, the lipstick will get on the spoon. And then when the spoon is put back into the blood again, it mixes with the blood. And actually you can see that there's like, you know, particulate that kind of gets dissolved in the blood. This is why it's preferable um, not to wear lipstick um, or if there will be lipstick, it'd be very light lipstick and the kind that does not come off easily um, just because it can contaminate um, the blood um, in the chows. Number two. Why do we pray the 11th and 12th hour of the Egbeya during Jonah's fast? So I, I'm assuming here that the question is asking, why do we pray the 11th and 12th hour Egbeya during the liturgy, right? So we know that um, in the offering of the lamb, so we have in the morning, you have the raising of incense is the first part of the prayer of the liturgy, um, matins. And then after matins, you have the offering of the lamb. And right before the actual lamb is offered, there is the prayers from the Egbeya, the prayer of the hours um, that is done. And there are certain rules that will determine how many hours are prayed. Um, some, some liturgies, we pray only the third and sixth hours. Some we add the ninth hour and some we add um, the ninth and the 11th and 12th hour. Okay. So this, is, this depends on um, the day um, and the fasting season. Okay. So on a standard day, which is like a day where there is no fasting, um, or on a weekend, we pray only the third and the sixth hours, okay? If it is a fasting day um, on a weekday, um, in every fast other than Jonah's fast and the great fast, so if it's just, let's say, a Wednesday, which is a normal fasting day, or if it is like, say, the fast of the nativity and any day during the week, um, we add the ninth hour in addition to the third and sixth hour. Um, if it is Jonah's fast or the great fast um, on a weekday, then we go all the way up to the 12th. So we would say the third, the sixth, the ninth, the 11th, and the 12th. Why do we do this? So we know that the prayer of the hours is related to um, the, the, the time of day, right? So it's supposed to be that there are certain uh, times of day where each of these prayers is prayed. So the, 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 the liturgies, okay, are um, supposed to be scheduled according to 
the uh, abstinence for that day. So for instance, if it is a standard day um, there, and there's no fasting, right? Then the, the, there's no abstinence. There's no abstinence in, as part of the fast. So the liturgy can be done earlier in the morning because the liturgy, when we have the liturgy, it's considered like breaking the fast, right? Breaking my abstinence, taking communion is breaking the abstinence for that day. So on the days where there is no fasting, the liturgies can be early in the morning. Um, and because it's supposed to be early in the morning, we're only going to pray the third and sixth hours because that's about the time frame where the liturgy would be. Okay. Um, also, if it's a weekend, we also only play, pray the third and sixth hours because both Saturday and Sunday are considered to be joyful days. Okay. So on Saturday, we commemorate um, the events of Bright Saturday, which is where the Lord frees those who are imprisoned in Hades. And um, on Sunday, of course, is the day of the resurrection. So on those two days, both Saturday and Sunday um, are joyful days. And so there is no abstinence. So even during the great fast, for instance, there is no abstinence in the morning on Saturdays and Sundays. So this is why on Saturdays and Sundays, whenever we have liturgies, we have early morning liturgies, right? There is no period of abstinence, even though we are fasting, right? If it's a fasting period, um, we, we are we are not um, you know we, we are not uh, abstaining uh, in the morning okay um, on standard fasting periods like let's say the nativity fast the apostles fast um, saint mary's fast on, on these types of fasts okay or even on the wednesdays and fridays um, we abstain until the early afternoon Okay, it's supposed to be abstinence until the early afternoon. So the liturgies are supposed to be a little later in the day on the weekdays, right? Because that's when the abstinence is. So in that, in that case, we pray also the ninth hour, right? Because the liturgies are supposed to be a little later because the abstinence lasts a little longer. And so we add the ninth hour as well. Finally, on the Jonah's and the great fast, because they are like the strictest fasts of the year, um, the abstinence is supposed to last even longer until like the evening time, okay? Um, again, on weekdays, because the abstinence only happens on weekdays. So the liturgies are supposed to be even later in the day. So in that case, um, because the liturgies are even later in the day, we're praying all of the hours um, of the Igbeya all the way through the 12th hour. For practical reasons, like based on what is the schedule of the, of the, of the parish, what is the timing that people can attend, you know, in practice, we have liturgies at various times of the day. Like we might have a fast, sorry, a, a liturgy for the great fast weekday that's actually in the morning, for instance, because from a practical, for practical reasons, that's the time where people can attend. So in that case, um, even though the liturgy is in the morning, but we are still praying according to the rite. And according to the rite is, is that we are praying all of the hours from the Egbeya all the way through um, to the 12th hour. Okay, so that's that's the explanation of why of why that is. Number three. Can you talk about the Nephilim? Were they actually real? And what role do they play in the Christian belief? Um, so the the question uh, here is based on this passage. Okay, this passage is in Genesis chapter six. Okay. So um, it says what? It says, now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful 
and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. There were giants on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old men of renown. Okay. Um, so this word that's used for giants, okay, in Hebrew is Nephilim. That is the Hebrew word that's translated here in the New King James Version. It's translated to be giants. And so what is it saying? It's saying that this group called the sons of God, okay, um, came into the, the daughters of men, meaning they had like physical relationship with the daughters of men, okay, and they bore children. And these children were these giants, okay? They were giants on the earth, and they were these mighty men who were called giants. These, these um, this, this race of giants, okay, is mentioned in several places in the scripture. So, for instance, um, yeah, when, when the Israelites, um, after they had escaped from Egypt, from slavery in Egypt, and they were called by God to go and enter into the promised land, they sent spies in order to, to scope out the land and to see, um, you, you know, whether they could enter the land or not. And they came back after they saw that the land was full of, of giants, right? It, sa it says in Numbers 13, there we saw the giants, the descendants of Anak came from the giants, and we were like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight, right? So um, there is many mentions in the scripture of people who were considered to be giants, okay, in the, in the Old Testament, okay? Um, some Bible verses will translate this word giants, and some of them will just keep the word as Nephilim, okay, which is the original Hebrew word. So the question is, who are these Nephilim, okay? And who are the sons of God and who are the daughters of men, right? Who are, you know, the Nephilim are the offspring of the sons of God and the daughters of men. So some people, some Christians, okay, they believe that the sons of God here is referring to angels. Um, and the daughters of men are human beings, like human women. And that there was a, a physical relationship between these angels and these women okay and the resulting like new species that came out of this relationship were these race of giants these mighty giants that then lived on the earth okay this is some people believe this but this is not what we believe okay um we believe that the sons of god refers to the line uh, uh the ancestry of seth so seth was one of the children of Adam and Eve. Um, and he was a righteous and godly man. And his descendants were also righteous and God-fearing. Okay. And actually, it is said about his descendants in Genesis chapter 4. It says, then men began to call on the name of the Lord. So who were these men who began to call on the name of the Lord? These people who are God-fearing people. These were the descendants of Seth. Okay. And we know that the term sons of gods or gods is used to refer to the children of God, us, the believers, right? We are called the children of God. In Psalm 82, verse 6, it says, I said you are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High. So we shouldn't take the, 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 you know, the phrase sons of God um, as being there is some literal, uh, you know, some so like like literally these are like some kind of like species of angels or or anything other than human beings right 
Um, we are the sons of God. Those who are believers are the sons of God, are the children of God. So it happened, though, that these righteous people who are the, the children of Seth, the descendants of Seth, right? These men, they um, became involved in relationships with the daughters of men. So just as the sons of God refers to those who are the children of God, those who are righteous, those who are God-fearing, the daughters of men is then referring to the opposite, right? Because it's saying of men. So it's like, these are the carnal. These are the earthly, right? So, so it so happened that these men were uh, married, these daughters of men, this, these, these women, right? These, these who were of the line of Cain. Cain actually is the one who lived wickedly. Um, we know that he is the one who killed his brother Abel. And we know that his descendants were also wicked like him, okay? And they were not God-fearing. So, so it's saying that the, 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 the sons of the line of Seth married into the lineage of the daughters of Cain, okay? Um, and so the resulting, uh, the resulting people um, were called the Nephilim, okay? Um, so, so again, like this is not something supernatural. This isn't something, you know, um, strange, right? That's happening. It's just referring to two, two different groups of people coming together. Um, what does Saint Athanasius say about it? So he says what? From Adam, Seth was born, who was the third after Abel. And from Seth, Enosh was born. He hoped to be called the Lord and God. Therefore, the children born from him bear the name sons of God. Okay, so the, 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 the children born from the, this lineage were, were called the sons of God. Just like we also, from the name of the Master Christ, are called Christians. The race of Seth was segregated and not mixed with the race of Cain because of the curse which was laid on him by the God of the universe, right? Because God had placed a curse on Cain after he killed his brother Abel. But later, when they observed how beautiful the daughters of Cain's family were, they became enchanted and took them for themselves as wives, thus ruining the, their ancestral nobility, right? So that's exactly what St. Athanasius is explaining here, is that you had these righteous men from the line of Seth marry the, these women from the line of Cain, and their offspring became known as the Nephilim, right? So the, were they actually real? They're real, but they're not anything special, okay? And what role do they play in Christian belief? They really don't have any role in Christian belief. There's nothing supernatural about them. We just believe that they are human beings. Number four, how does the church feel about aliens? I found it hard to believe that in such a vast universe, we're the only beings. What does the church think about them? And did God create them too? So we know for a fact that God created the entire universe and everything in the universe, and, and the things that we can see in the sky and the things that we cannot see, right? And he created everything from nothing, along with all energy and matter and everything that is in the universe, God created, okay? Um, so this means that if there were any other life, whether intelligent or otherwise, that is out there in the universe, then God is the one who created them as well. So, um, even though we, you know, don't right now have any concrete evidence of the existence of any such life, right? Um, but that doesn't mean that it can't exist. And, and it doesn't contradict our faith if it does exist, right? So certainly the Bible does not mention the existence of any other kind of life outside of the earth, 
okay? But again, the purpose of the Bible is not to reveal all the hidden secrets and mysteries of the universe. Like that's not, that's not what the Bible is for. The Bible is not to tell us and reveal to us information and things that's kind of really not really relevant to us or just to tell us the mind of God or to tell us what, what is it that God has done. The Bible is a book of salvation of humanity, right? So we read it because it is for our salvation as human beings. It doesn't reveal to us the mysteries of the universe. So that does not mean that God could not have created, you know, another group. And if he did create another group, their story is unique to them, has nothing to do with us. You know, if they have a story of salvation as well, their story of salvation could be completely different than our story of salvation. But the, 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 the similarity would be there is still one God and we worship the one God, right? So whether we will ever know for sure whether there is um, life, you know, intelligent life outside of earth or not, I don't know, right? But whether it exists or it doesn't exist really has no bearing at all on our lives, on our Christian faith, on, on salvation, on what we need to do. You know, if, if one day we find out that there really is intelligent life somewhere, um, it really has no bearing at all on, on anything that we believe. Number five, could you please explain the verse in Proverbs 9, verse 13? So let's read, um, let's read the whole passage from uh, chapter 9, verse 13, all the way through verse 18. Uh, it says, a foolish woman is clamorous. She is simple and knows nothing, for she sits at the door of her house on a seat by the highest places of the city to call to those who pass by, who go straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn and hear. And as for him who lacks understanding, she says to him, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of hell. This chapter in Proverbs 19 speaks about this metaphorical woman who like is a representation of lust and speaks about like this simple man um, this young youth, this foolish man who walks in, in this place where she is and is attracted by her and falls into sin with her, okay? So this clamorous woman, this foolish woman that's being discussed here is not like a specific woman, but it is a metaphorical woman who is representing lust. And what do we know about her? What is it that, that King Solomon says about her in this proverb? So he says about her that she sits... Um, at the door calling all who are naive that pass by her to fall into sexual sin with her. Like she is sitting at the door. She is making herself available, right? She is, she is, she's visible. She's, she's so that anyone kind of walking anywhere near there who maybe did not even have the desire or the intention to fall into sin. Maybe they were minding their own business. They were going about their day, doing their own thing. And yet she is there as like, um, uh, 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 an, an attraction. She is there to distract. She is there to, uh, to, to bring someone who otherwise had no intention to sin down into sin. Okay. And actually um, like, like in condemnation, right. Which is something that of course we, we, we understand about lust. Lust is often something um, not something that we seek after, but something that kind of presents itself in, for, in front of us. And we're put in a situation where we must choose Right? Am I going to look? Am I going to think? Am I going to pursue this? Uh, 
or am I going to um, look the other way? Am I going to go about my day? Am I going to do what I what is it that I know I should be doing as opposed to being attracted to this lust, right? And this is the the way of lust. It's describing the characteristics here of lust. Okay, so she sits at the door, and she also sits what on the highest places on the city, right? It is it is not just she's in an obscure place. She's not just in a place that maybe if it so happens that you, you know, go down the specific path, you will happen to find her. She is extremely visible. And actually, if you look at our society today, um, we can see this everywhere. Like um, the idea of sexuality and attraction, right? We see it on every TV show. We see it in music. Um, we see it in movies. We see it on the internet. We see it even like when you, when you wish not to see it, it's in your face everywhere you go. Okay, so for, for definitely like the idea that that this metaphorical woman is sitting on the highest places on the city, we definitely can see this in our life that that this this lust is everywhere. Right. And that's why often the only way to really guard ourselves from falling into sin and lust is to avoid as much as possible all of the places where she might be found. Okay. And the hard thing about this is, you know, you might have, uh, you might have to restrict yourself a lot in order to avoid seeing these things. You know, people will ask the question, it's like, let's say, you know, there's a TV show that I really like to watch. And this TV show, 90, 95% of it is good. And there's nothing in it that's bad. But that extra 5%, whenever I watch it, whenever it presents itself, even though I wasn't looking for it, 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 it causes me to fall into sin, causes me to fall into lust. So what should I do? And this is where we have the difficult question that we have to answer, right? If it's something that is out of our control, but we know that it is there, then it is something avoidable. It's something we can avoid. But here, just like in this situation, this, this metaphorical woman who's sitting up at these highest places, it, it's hard to avoid something that's everywhere, right? But as Christians, we are called to remain pure. And if for me... Um, I have this weakness, then, you know, I have to go to the extent, like what Christ said, if my eye causes me to sin, then I rip out my eye, right? Like I gouge it out, right? This is the extent to which Christ called us to remain pure. So if, if for me, I have to avoid watching things that otherwise, in every other respect, are acceptable, but because of this causes me to sin, then this is on me then to take that step and to say, well, maybe I can't watch this at all. Like maybe this is something that is, um, you know, is, 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 is too tempting, right, for me, even though the majority of it is fine, okay? Um, it says also that she's a clamorous woman, right? Clamorous means that she makes a clamor. She makes loud noises, right? Again, another way to attract someone who is not paying attention to her, someone who is walking by the other way, doesn't look at her. She makes noises to attract Right. This is all the characteristics of lust, something that makes it so difficult to resist. Right. And she attracts those who lack understanding. OK, so who are those who lack understanding? Those who believe that they are strong enough to resist her. Those who believe that they can be in those places and do those things without being affected, without falling into sin, without actually giving in to lust right, without being harmed, that they try to get the good out of something while leaving the bad. And while that sounds nice, and that sounds like, you know, an ideal situation, 
but in practice, she is so powerful. She is so strong. She's so crafty. Um, and again, look at all these characteristics, you know, um, and, and she preys on those who are simple minded, right? Who, who think that they can, that they lack understanding, that thinks that they can, they can be in her presence and not be affected by her. She attracts them, okay, um, by what, by making things like here in, in this scripture where she says what, um, uh, whoever is simple, let him turn in here. Stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant, right? So, so even when the temptation to lust, when the person kind of is toying with the idea of falling into lust, um, the attraction is what is that it is something that would be kept a secret, right? Something that is kept a secret. She attracts them by saying that the sexual sin is, is secret and it is actually more pleasant because it is a secret, right? And so it is alluring, right, to this person who thinks that they can enjoy something and no one will know. And this could be even in the, like, doesn't even have to be like a physical act. It could be just in the mind, you know? Um, whenever someone commits lust in the mind, no one knows. Nobody else sees. Only God sees, right? The kinds of thoughts that we have. Or certainly people who think that they can have maybe like a sexual affair or some kind of sexual relationship that nobody will know. We are not going to tell anyone. We're not going to reveal it to anyone. And so it'll be something that we can enjoy in secret without any consequence, right? Again, this is um, this is a deception. This is this is a lie, thinking that we can do this and not be affected by it. So it is alluring, right, in that sense. Um, also, it says what, but he does not know that the dead are there, meaning the person who falls into this trap of lust, right, this sexual temptation falls into it, doesn't realize that this is a place for the dead. This is a place of judgment. This is a place where... Where, where this person will be emptied of all joy, will be emptied of all peace, will be emptied of everything that is good, and they will have to pay this ultimate price for this sin. Even for people who commit like this, it's like physical act, let's say, of having an affair. Like, how much do they live in stress, afraid that someone will find out what it is that they're doing? And they're having to hide things like, you know, their emails and their text messages and their phone. And like, like, like they put on this elaborate kind of cover-up to cover what they are actually doing and what they actually desire and what they have, the way they're actually living, right? So, you know, th this is a place um, where the dead, her guests are in the depths of hell. All those who came to lust, all those who, who came to lust thinking that they could enjoy it without any consequence, without any ramification, without any condemnation, without any judgment, those were foolish because when they entered thinking that this was going to be something pleasant, they found in the end, there was death and condemnation. So um, as Christians, we need to take extra care, right? So that we would not be the ones lacking understanding and falling into a trap from which we cannot escape, right? Especially now in the great fast, it is a good opportunity for us to try to be more disciplined, to cut down on the media that we consume, um, which is, like I said, a great source of sexual temptation and instead try to divert that time and that energy to give it to God in some kind of spiritual practice, some kind of spiritual exercise. Instead of spending as much time watching TV and movies and so on, we try to be more productive. We try to pray more. We try to serve more. We try to read more. All those things in, 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 in lieu of maybe our normal schedule that we had before. So this will help us to overcome lust. 
and it will help us to be more productive and, and go deeper in our spiritual life during this time of um, uh, this time of uh, of the Greek fast. Number six. In Proverbs 11.20, Solomon says, those who are of a perverse heart are an abomination to the Lord. What does a person with a perverse heart look like and how can we avoid that sin? Um, so what is, what is perversion? Okay, so first let's, um, let me read the entire verse and it kind of gives us a context on what is, what is meant. So it says, those who are of a perverse heart are an abomination to the Lord, but the blameless in their ways are his delight. So the, the, the person who is perverse is the person that is to be blamed. Okay, so they are blamed as, as a contrast to those who are blameless. If you look in the dictionary, one of the definitions of perversion is diverting from the true intent or purpose a change to something worse, a turning or applying to a wrong end or use. So it is taking something that God intended to be used in one way, and it is deviating and using it in a perverse way, which is a way that's contrary to the way that it was intended to be used. Okay, so let's find some examples here from the scripture. So Proverbs 14, 2, it says, he who walks in his uprightness fears the Lord. But he who is perverse in his ways despises him. So someone who is perverse, someone who is going against what God intended, using the things that God has made in a way that is contrary, right, is perverse. Proverbs 10.31, the mouth of the righteous brings forth wisdom, but the perverse tongue will be cut out. Meaning God gave us our mouth. God intended that we use our mouth for encouragement, for worship, for praise you know, for, for, for showing love to people, right? For, for speaking wisdom, for teaching, right? All those are positive uses of our mouth of speaking, right? But the perverse tongue will be cut out, meaning the same thing, the same mouth that God made to be used in wisdom um, can be used actually contrary to that and can be used for cursing, can be used for insulting, for lying and so on, right? In verse 32, it says, the lips of the righteous know what is acceptable, but the mouth of the wicked, what is perverse? OK, so so the righteous is the one who uses everything according to God's intended plan, whereas the perverse is the one who uses the things that God has made for a deviated purpose. OK, so I would say maybe generally we can divide up these kind of perversion into two main categories of perversion. The first type of perversion is those who practice what is contrary to God's law. Right. So. Those who live in sin without repentance. Sin is deviation from what God intended. God intended for us to live in a certain way. And when we sin, we deviate from the way that God intended for us to live, right? This is why there is consequences for sin. Whenever we sin, there is consequence because it is contrary to what God intended for us, how God intended for us to live. So God is perfect. So any deviation from his law results in some kind of a physical, emotional, mental, or spiritual pain, right? As a natural consequence, and this is an important point to understand, it is not the case that every time we sin, that God is there from heaven smiting us with some kind of punishment, okay? That is not the way it works. The, the natural consequence of our sin is what we experience. So for instance, when Eve ate of the forbidden fruit, okay, it was a perversion, 
because God did not intend for that fruit to be eaten. And the natural consequence of her disobedience was death. It was a consequence that was natural. It was not an artificially created consequence. It was simply the natural consequence. Like when you walk in the middle of the road, you know, like if you walk in the, like try to cross the freeway at night, okay, most likely you're going to get hit by a car. So you can't say that, you know, getting hit by a car was a punishment. It wasn't a punishment. It was the natural consequence of a foolish action, right? The same was true with, um, with Eve eating the forbidden fruit. When King David married Bathsheba, okay, and killed her husband, and, okay, and took her unlawfully as his wife, right? This, again, was a perversion. It was contrary to God's intention, right? And there was a lot of natural consequences that came from it. Um, the idea that the Israelites would worship idols, this is a perversion. This is not God's intend, intention, right? And there were many consequences that came from it. So each of those actions went against God's law, and each one resulted in some negative consequence. So often we sin, you know, and there isn't any kind of cataclysmic consequence, right? There is some, sometimes we sin and there doesn't appear to be any kind of like exile or destruction of, of nature or, or, or anything, right? But there, there is always some kind of consequence, even if it is more subtle. For instance, separation from God, guilt, self-loathing, fear of punishment, separation from the rest of the body of Christ. Just the, 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 all these are feelings and consequences that we might have about ourselves, about God, about, you know, without it being um, very overt or obvious, but that as we live a life of sin, these things kind of build up in us, like a feeling of guilt, a feeling of I'm not on the right track, a feeling of fear, a feeling of maybe self-hatred. All these things are consequences of living a life of sin. So whenever we sin, it is a kind of a perversion. We are using the things that God made for us, but we're using it in the wrong way. The second type of perversion that I'm going to mention here is um, those who redefine what is right and wrong, right? It's the redefinition. Because like I said, God intended for us to, to do things a certain way. So if I um, am you, if I am, am, am relabeling what is right and what is wrong, then this is also a perversion because I am, I am placing myself in the place of God, right? So if somebody declares something to be good that God has declared to be sin or vice versa, if someone declares something to be evil that actually God said is good. So this one isn't so much about committing a sin necessarily, but it is more about redefining what is sin, okay? So for instance, the Pharisees. The Pharisees had all of these rules that they had made up that they felt were necessary and for righteousness, okay? All these man-made rules. And Christ rebuked them. He says in Mark 7, verse 8, he says, for laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups and many other things you do, right? And this verse like perfectly mirrors what it is that we are living today, okay? Our society is filled with a bunch of Pharisees, okay? And each of these Pharisees is, has a certain moral system, believing that certain things are right and wrong. And what are these things that are right and wrong? They are not what God has defined to be right and wrong. Actually, as a society, we have taken things that God clearly has labeled as wrong, and we have declared them to be righteous. And we have taken things that God has said are, are, 
are, are good and that we should do in the way we should live. And they said, no, this is an abomination. You shouldn't live this way. And each individual is given now in, in our society, it is a postmodern society where every person redefines for themselves what is right and wrong. And there is no foundation of truth. There is no foundation of morality. There is no one who is declaring what is the truth. Everyone is just kind of speaking their mind and, and living life the way that they believe it should be lived without any kind of um, like, like authority to tell us, okay, what is right and wrong. So we do not look toward God as this unchanging source of moral law, but each one looks to themselves inwardly in their own emotions. What do they feel is right and wrong? So this is a perversion, right? Because we have taken God's moral code. We have taken God's commandments and we have twisted them. We have, we have maligned them, right? And this is, this is perversion. And so God is saying what well, we are to be blamed. We are to be blamed because we have set aside God's law and instead we are choosing to live according to our own law, okay? Um, how do we avoid this sin of perversion? Okay, well, the first is we have to understand God's law very well. Like we have to, we have to read God's law. We have to understand it. We have to know it. We can't just assume that we understand it. We have to read it in the, in the Bible and learn what is it that he says and learn from the church how we understand and interpret the law of God. The second is we have to place this law higher than the law of man, right? Because oftentimes we find that the law of God contradicts the law of man, right? So in those situations, what do I do, right? It, it, for us to be faithful Christians, we place the law of God above the law of man. The number one goal of, that I have is to obey the law of God. Yes, we also try to obey the laws of man, but only when it doesn't contradict the law of God, right? The law of God should be my code of conduct, right? It is something that it is what allows me to draw closer to God because now he has defined for me what is right and wrong. What is something that will allow me to draw closer and what will be a hindrance to me being in union with God, okay? This, this is all related to this idea of perversion, okay? I have to be committed to obey and follow this law. And then finally, I have to be willing to repent, right? Because we will inev inevitably not be able to follow this law forever, all the time, perfectly. So whenever we fall, we are committed again to repent, to change our ways, to rise again, and to try again. Okay, so um, so this is, um, this is what is necessary for us to know the word of God, to live by it, and to be corrected whenever we are, um, are fall away from it. Um, this last question is, is kind of, um, I'll, I'll give a kind of a longer answer to it, um, is in Proverbs 31, okay, it says Solomon speaks about the virtuous wife. Could you explain how, how that would look like in our modern days? So this is a famous passage from Proverbs chapter 31, where, um, where King Solomon speaks about the characteristics of a virtuous wife. And one thing that strikes you immediately when you read this, and we'll kind of, we're going to go through it verse by verse, but what, what kind of strikes you when you read this is it sounds very different from the stereotypical kind of wife that, you know, typically maybe people would look at Christians and say, oh, you believe that women, you know, they just need to stay at home and do housework and raise kids and that's it. You know, maybe that's the stereotype um, of the way that the church and that Christianity sees women and their role. Actually, if you read this, it's completely the opposite. 
um, of that. And so we need to um, carefully look at, uh, you know, what our beliefs are, maybe our personal beliefs, and compare them to the beliefs that is in scripture um, and, and make sure that they align. Okay, so I'm going to read um, here these verses, and we'll talk about each one. So he starts out in verse 10. He says, who can find a virtuous wife? For her worth is far above rubies. Okay, her worth comes from her virtue. Like her worth does not come from her external appearance. This is something that um, historically as a society, people tend to look at women and judge them according to their physical appearance. Okay, but here King Solomon makes it very clear that her worth is not coming from physical appearance. Her worth is coming from her virtue. Her worth is coming from her devotion to God. Her worth is coming from her godliness, not simply um, the way she appears and not simply her cleverness or her ingenuity or anything. Her worth is coming from her virtue. And that this is a rare thing to find because sadly in our world, both for men and women, so many people are caught up in the vanity of the world that how many people are actually living their life to please God versus living their life to please themselves, right? The, most of the world is vain, obsessed with exterior appearances, vain pursuits, the pursuit of money, and so on. Um, so so that's, that's important. The other thing I want to mention here at the beginning is when we speak about the topic of feminism, and this is just my um, observation. When you speak about feminism, what I've observed is a lot of people that are very feminist, the way that they act is they want to give the opportunity for women to do all the same things as men, okay? But a lot of the things that they are wanting to do that is essentially pursue the same vain things that men pursue. You know, like, like it, it's, it's one thing if we say, you know what, what is the goal of humanity? What is our goal as men and women together? Well, our goal as men and women is that we should be, you know, um, obeying God, you know, having the favor of God, like worshiping God, like, like God is our number one, right? And so if men are doing this and women are doing this, then we are saying that we have equality, right? This is our goal, our target, right? Our goal and our target should not be to make money. Our goal, our target should not be to have all of the same, you know, like, like to, 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 to say that work is, is the number one thing that we should be doing. You know, so yes, it is true that, you know, maybe men are pursuing this so much and women are wanting to get in on this. That's something that historically they have not been. But I would question whether that's even the right thing to do. You know, like, like maybe the right thing to do is to tell the men that you are too obsessed with money. You are too obsessed with power. You are too obsessed with this. Instead, here, according to what King Solomon says is pursue virtue, you know, pursue, pursue virtue. It, it, feminism should not be that we want to make men like like we want to make women like men. The, the right philosophy should be we want both men and women to be like God, right? If we make both men and women to be like God, meaning we, we all have the same goals, we have the same priorities, our priority is to make God number one. And then we can say that we have equality in the right thing. There's no point in having equality in the wrong thing. Right, because then, then you're not really you're not really getting you're not you're not you're not really get, getting there. You're not moving forward. You are just saying that well, because one group is you know historically been permitted to be um, you know like pursuing certain things and obsessed with them and and you know like pursuing them like with the absence of God, like God is not in those things. 
right? That is not a target for me to, to aim for. My, the target that we aim for is, is the target of virtue, is the target of love of God and worship of God and so on. So, so here, the, the be very beginning of this passage about the virtuous wife emphasizes what are the, the principles, what are the, the, the things that we should admire in a person, whether it be a man or a woman. It is not the fact that they make a lot of money and it's not their physical appearance. It is their relationship with God. It is their virtue that matters, whether man or whether woman. So then it goes on and says, the heart of her husband safely trusts her, so he will have no lack of gain. Okay, so, so here it's describing the relationship between the husband and the wife. So her husband trusts her, right? He trusts that she will make good decisions. He trusts that she will nurture and raise children in a good way. He trusts that she is faithful to him, right? And, and vice versa as well, because trust cannot work only one direction. You have to have trust in both directions. That if, if only one person trusts the other, it doesn't work. You have to have both people trusting each other. And this is a foundation of a good relationship is there has to be trust. If you look at uh, uh, relationships where there is no trust, where um, spouses cannot trust what the other person says, when whenever the one spouse is not present, the other is wondering where they are. Are they really where they said they are? Let me go check on their location. Um, when I have an opportunity, let me go through their phone and check their text messages and check their you know, social media accounts and check all this stuff. Why? Because I just don't trust them. This erodes and eats away at the relationship, right? So, so what is it that I look for in a wife, right? In this situation is I look for someone that I can trust. Someone that I can trust is far more valuable than external appearance, right? It is someone who really I trust and I don't, I don't doubt what they are doing and what they are, what they are saying. Um, she does him good and not evil all the days of her, of, of her life, meaning she is on his side, right? She is on his side. She's not his enemy. When spouses become each other's enemy, um, that's really when the relationship takes a downturn. Because at that point, we don't see that we are, maybe if we have conflicts or we have um, issues or problems in our relationship. We don't look at each other as on the same side or able to, to, to resolve these problems or even try to resolve them. Instead, all I do is I try to protect myself from you. I try to protect myself so I'm not hurt by you, so I'm not harmed by you because you are trying to attack me in some way or the other. And once we see each other in that way, it becomes very hard to resolve those conflicts and those situations because, again, it, it stems back from a lack of trust. I don't trust you. I believe that you are trying to hurt me. She seeks wool and flax and willingly works with her hands. She is like the merchant ships. She brings her food from afar. Meaning what? That she works diligently, right? Both inside and outside of the house. She is diligent. She is resourceful. She works. Like she has, she has a lot of responsibility, right? And this could, could mean like working in terms of like working in a job or it could be working like in all of the work that's needed in the house you know, like raising children and taking care of the house and taking care of all kinds of things. This is a full-time job. Like this isn't something that, it, that we should look down on. Again, this is like back to what I was saying about the feminism. Like the, the feminist mentality is that somehow raising children and, and taking care of a house is not as good as working in a job outside of the house, right? And because we have placed that as like, um, like, like a, our value system, Okay, when we place that as a value system, then certainly in order for me to be equal that I need to be able to have a job outside the house, right? 
But but if everyone is leaving the house and having jobs outside of the house, what happens to the kids? How much effort does it take for us to raise our kids, especially in the days that we are living in today, where the world is full of such evil and wickedness and deception, and even the schools themselves are trying to indoctrinate our kids against our Christian principles, right? If everyone is so focused only on making money and working outside of the house, what's left for, for, for the energy and the time that we have in the house? Right. I'm not saying it's wrong to work. And, and oftentimes it's absolutely necessary that we have to work and we don't have a choice. All I'm saying is let's not downplay the importance of the house. Let's not downplay the importance of the family. Let's not downplay the importance of all the work that we have to do uh, in the family to make our children to be successful. Right. And I don't just mean academically. I mean, to build their character, to teach them the faith, to, to be a good example and a model for them and so on. But here we see this example of this woman. She is not a helpless woman. She is not a woman that, you know, is in constant need of other people to tell her what to do or to help her because she, she has no idea. She's actually an expert and a master at everything that she does. And she's very clever and resourceful. Okay. Then it goes on and says, she also rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and a portion for her maidservants. Right. So it gives you this, this impression that she is very self-sacrificing, right? She rises while it is yet night. Like, like she is, she is, she, she, like, she's always interested in the well-being of others before herself, right? She is providing food for her house. She is feeding the servants. She is working at night while everyone else is resting. And certainly we see like maybe, um, you know, with certain mothers that are always tirelessly taking care of their family, like we see this so much in them that they're always thinking about how can I serve another person? How can I serve the guests? How can I serve my husband? How can I serve my kids? How can I serve everyone, right? And, and, and this mindset of self-sacrifice is definitely something um, that is valuable, right? When, when, when looking for this virtuous wife as King Solomon is describing here. Um, she considers a field and buys it. From her profits, she plants a vineyard. Again, like normally, like you, you, you would think that the stereotype, especially among the ancient Jewish people, is that women are not doing this. You know, you, you, don't, you, you don't consider that women are going to be the ones who are buying the fields and, and, and sharing the profits and, and, and coming up with business plans and planting and doing all this stuff. But that's exactly what it was. That's exactly what he is saying here. Like she is very resourceful. She is very talented, right? And she knows what is necessary to be done for the sake of the family, for the sake of, of, of our success, right? Even to do these kinds of things. She girds herself with strength and strengthens her arms, meaning she's able to do hard work, right? She, she, she's strengthening her arms. She's, she does hard work. She doesn't do easy things. It's not just, you know, token jobs here and there. She's doing really hard work, difficult things, right? And there's no indication at all here that she is doing things you know, any less than a man would do, right? In terms of, in terms of the work she's doing. There's, there's nothing here that says that. Um, she perceives that her merchandise is good and her lamp does not go out by night. She stretches her hands out to the distaff and her hand holds the spindle. Meaning she look at all the different types of work she does at the same time, right? Like it's almost exhausting just reading about all the stuff that she's doing. And, and maybe it also points to the idea that women are very good at multitasking. Um, typically, uh, women, the way their minds work, the way their brains are wired, that they're actually better at multitasking than men. So she's doing all these things at the same time, right? 
she's able to handle the stress of it. She's able to, 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 to raise the kids and to do this business and to, you know, think about the needs of others and like everything at once. She extends her hand to the poor. Yes, she reaches out her hands to the needy. Not only is she providing for her own, but she is thinking about those who are outside of her household as well, right? She's not just caring for her own, her own family, but she sees what are the needs of other people around me? What about the poor? She's willing to serve. And this again is a mark of, of someone who is a very virtuous and person and someone whose worth is far above rubies. I can work really hard for my family, for myself, for my own. But if I'm also in addition to this serving, I serve in the church, I serve the community, I give of what is mine to others, I'm thinking about the needs of others, this is really someone to be praised, right? Because I'm not just, you know, taking all of my effort and, and so that it would benefit me, right? But I'm, I'm also serving God, I'm giving to the people of God, I'm helping those people as much as um, God is calling me to do. She is not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household is clothed with scarlet, meaning she is prepared. She is prepared for the future. We, we plan ahead. We know ahead of time what it is that we should expect as much as we're able, and we've planned for it. You know, maybe like, you know, a modern day example of this is maybe someone who is saving up money because eventually they're going to need to pay for their children's college education, let's say. Like, again, I'm, I'm, I'm being frugal maybe when I, you, you know, now to save up extra money for that. I'm planning ahead. I'm not afraid of snow for the household. I'm not afraid of expenses. I'm not afraid of those things because in every way I've planned for it. I have, I've considered it and, and I'm, I'm, I'm ready for it, right? You know, we know often like uh, mothers who have everything that is needed, you know, a lot of times... Um, you know, you, you, go, you go somewhere and they have already prepared everything and they have sandwiches and they have all the items you need and everything. Why? Because they think ahead, right? That's also part of like the mind of, of, of like a good mother, someone who's always thinking ahead and preparing for the future. She makes, uh, she makes tapestry for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. So again, in addition to all of these other good qualities, it's giving a sense of that she is like an elegant person. Like she is working hard, but she's also elegant. She cares for her appearance, but she is not vain, right? She is, she, she's working hard, but she's also considering that, that, that this, is, this is, you know, she wants to look good, right? But not in like a, a vain way. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land, meaning her husband is a righteous man. Her husband is a man with his own status, uh, with his own uh, work, with his own career, with his own service with, in every way, right? He sits among the elders of the land, meaning he is well-respected among the people, right? He is a decision maker, he's important, okay? Um, and it is important that the two people kind of fit together in this way, right? Um, she can't be all these things and her husband is the total opposite, right? And vice versa, like he can't be very responsible and hardworking and so on and his wife is not. In order for the woman to kind of reach this status to where she is doing this, her husband has to trust her. Her husband has to allow her to do these things. He can't be the kind of very controlling person who is not allowing his wife to pursue all these things, right? Sometimes men are threatened by their wives. 
or if they feel like their wives are making more money than them, or they have, you know, a very uh, important or prominent position or job or their praise. Sometimes, unfortunately, men who are maybe have low uh, self-esteem about themselves are threatened by their wives and that should not be right here. This husband supports his wife, allows her to pursue all these things for the good of herself, for the good of the family, for the good of the people, for the good of the church, like like for everyone's good. And if God gives a person all of these skills and talents, it's because God wants them to use it. Right. So it is not right for a husband to feel threatened and not allow his wife to use the skills and the talents that were given to her by God, right? Because this is actually, this is not God's will, right? God would not give a person all of these things so that she does not use them, right? And so he shouldn't be threatened by her. In fact, he should support her. He, he should encourage her to grow in all these services and all these talents and all these skills. And it is actually for his own good, right? Um, it is for his own good. It is, it is for him to, you know, like, like he is the one growing as she is also growing. Also, she should be respectful of him, right? Just as he is respected among the elders of the land, she also is respectful of, of him and he is respectful of her. Uh, verse 24, she makes linen garments and sells them and supplies sashes for the merchants. Strength and honor are her clothing. She shall rejoice in time to come. She opens her mouth and wisdom, and on her tongue is the law of kindness. She is wise. She is able to counsel others. She is a good influence on others, on her peers. She can help the younger women who are still kind of learning and growing, that have less experience. How is it that they should live, right? She, she opens her mouth with wisdom. So that wisdom is, is very important. Like, it is not just a wisdom of speech but it is a wisdom of action. You know, when she's put in a, in a situation, she, she acts wisely. She acts in, a, in, in the right way. Um, on her tongue is the law of kindness. She is kind. She's not vindictive. She's not attacking. She is not taking revenge. She is kind. She's kind and she is patient. She watches over the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness, right? She doesn't allow herself to waste her day. And she is not idle which leads to gossip, which leads to despair, which leads to envy, right? Instead, she is always keeping herself busy. She is not letting her eyes to wander, but she focuses on what she has. She thanks God for what she has, and she works with what she has. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Because she is such a good model and example and hard worker and a God-fearing woman, everyone praises her. Her children praise her. Her husband praises her, right? You know, like, like, we want our children to respect us, then we should be respectful. You know, we want our children to, to, to look up to us, then we should give them something to look up to, right? We should be a good model and example, and we want our spouses to respect us, then we should also have in us all the same qualities that we wish that our spouse would have, right? If I want my spouse to forgive me, then I also should be forgiving. If I want my spouse to be patient with me, then I also should have patience with them. If I want you know, my spouse to show me love and the ways that I experience and feel love, I should also do the same for them, right? So, so this is a harmony, right? You can't take this virtuous woman and separate her from her family, from her children, from her husband. It is a harmony of all working together, a synergy. This is why um, when you have a, a well-functioning family, it can produce very godly, very good, very hardworking, very 
you know, um, uh, like, like successful and accomplished people from that family because the family is like a factory. It is, it is producing these people because it is well-functioning. It is functioning with, this, with, the, with this, the Holy Spirit. It is functioning with mutual respect and mutual love so that all the family members are kind of like healthy mentally and emotionally and so on. Whereas if you have the opposite, a very dysfunctional family, unfortunately, what can come out of that is broken people, people that are in pain, people that live in burden, people that live with stress, people that are struggling. It doesn't mean that those people cannot be successful, but it means that they have extra challenges that they must overcome, right? And oftentimes those people who maybe grew up with a family that is um, not as functional, um, that is difficult, they will learn from those experiences so that when they grow and they, they get married, for instance, and have their own family, they learn from all their experiences so they prevent this from happening again. So here, this is a model example. We are all trying to live up to this model. Of course, this is an ideal case. You know, nobody has this 100%, but God is giving us this ideal situation of, of what family can look like. Many daughters have done well, but you excel them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is passing, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands and let her own works praise her in the gates. Right, again, the focus is on the true inward beauty rather than the external beauty, right? And she will reap the rewards of her work, right? The natural reward, the, the natural reward that she will see in her children, that she will see in her life, that she will see in the peace that exists in the home. When we make good decisions, we reap the rewards of those good decisions for many years to come. So this is just a very quick overview of Proverbs 31, um, speaking about the virtuous wife. And there's a lot of very important things we can learn from both men and women um, from this. And it's, uh, it's good to contemplate and meditate on. Um, we're out of time for today. So let's just conclude in a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day. We thank you, O God, for every good work that you allow us to work in you. Strengthen us and help us, O Lord, in your service, in our personal lives, in the, in the life of the church, in everything that we do, O God. Remind us of your love and your presence in our lives. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray. Thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. God bless you. Have a good night.